the computer-based trading, how does that uh, change things? Some of the, you know, I mentioned those books I got from the TCU library earlier on how to, uh, how to manage a foreign currency desk. And some of them were written back when you would make a phone call. And of course, this mm. is like 1990 or so. So they're being so written I, about the 1980s. I don't know why. It just hits me. It's obviously, it slows things down. I mean, that's, that's a huge yeah. part of it. Yeah. And, and here's the other fascinating thing to me is there was a psychology and a sociology to it that you had to be pleasant to the other person you were talking to, that this is your mm. contact in London that you buy pounds from. And also, if that person calls you, you want to give them a good price because you don't want to be you, you want to make sure that there's people who will answer the phone when you call. And that, that's, you know, neither here nor there. I just thought it was fascinating that this is the way the world once worked. Now, with the computer screen, of course, it's totally anonymous. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. part two of my two-part conversation with Texas Christian University PhD economics professor and cowboy economist John Harvey. The topic of our conversation is exchange rate determination, and we continue to work through my question list, which can be found in the show notes for part one. Much more information and resources can be found in the show notes, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with John Harvey. Keynesian view is at the very end of the class when we get to policy and I say, so we shouldn't be letting them do that. Oh, uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> so that, that would be my, my, my view on that, if that makes sense. So basically, so basically it's to influence policy makers because there are some people are, I mean, roughly speaking, some people are know that the only way that they can benefit is if other people suffer. And well, so they don't, want, they don't want policy to be implemented that will yeah. prevent a lot of people from suffering. I don't think they view it that way, but yes. Um, I think they view it as they're really helping people that they're because, you know, that part of the whole thing they're buying into the mechanism by which exchange rates are being driven and stock prices are being driven. No, they don't buy into that part. Um, but the idea that the market system has an invisible hand that works to everybody's benefit, mm-hmm. well, yeah, they buy into that part. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay. All right. So, so next question. Uh, this is completely different. This is, a, this is basically a meta kind of a question. Yeah. Um, I am pretty sure that these things are not related, but since they're both just meta, yeah. I'm going to put them both together. Uh, so number one. I have heard you say that you disagree with something related to MMT, but that it's not a huge aspect. So I'd like to ask you, 
I mean, obviously, in you know your exchange rate determination, so I presume it has something to do with that. What is that? And that's, and then I'll just put this other thing out there as well. Uh, knowing that the book was written well over a decade ago, on page seventy-two, you say, "We, meaning the U.S., have a fractional reserve banking system." So, I'm going to guess that you would agree that that's no longer the case. But to ask this in a more broad sense. If you were to write a version two of your book or rewrite the book or whatever, um, what would the changes be, if any, and what would the impact of those changes be on the, you know, your conclusions and diagrams and mental models and so on? Okay. The first question is easy to answer. I'm not telling you. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my opinion, my, okay. And that was the question on, you know, there's stuff in MMT you don't agree with. What are they? Man, this is not the time for us to be picking at each other. There's enough people beating us up everywhere else. And it's, I mean, I, I've emailed Randy and Stephanie about it, and I think I'm right. I, 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 don't, I, I think they gave me a very poor answer. But I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, so it was nothing, it was absolutely nothing to do with policy. It had nothing to do with, with um, exchange rates, actually. Um, but hmm. it was a more fundamental thing. But yeah, I, 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 I guess um, I mentioned this maybe in one of my cowboy economists thing. I don't remember now. Uh, and people have asked me several times, like, you know, until we win, until we're the ones driving policy and I'm not somehow going to be, you know, uh, was this, I've heard somebody say nobody hates the left more than the left because, you know, there'll be some sort of progressive suggestion and then another group. Well, OK, uh, job program versus universal basic income. <laughs> we both want the same thing. I think their approach is flawed. But, you know, should we spend all our time and, and certainly we should spend some time talking about this because these, these are very much on the radar. What I'm talking about is not. Um, but, yeah, I'm absolutely not about to say anything uh, <laughs> is, um, uh, detrimental to our cause because our cause. Wow, OK, I sort of don't want to cause a problem. I, yeah, oh, no, 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 that's perfectly fine. I'm glad you asked, actually, uh, because this gives me another opportunity to tell people, yeah, I'm not telling you <laughs> that. Wow. Okay. Well, it's interesting that it's not related to, to your, what I consider your specialty. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not. Um, and, and I'm right and they're wrong, but, but it, <laughs> it didn't make okay. zero, zero difference to, gosh, I don't want to say to almost everything that you see written about, um, I think there's a couple of places where it comes up, but yeah. But even then, where it does come up, it really doesn't matter whether I'm right or they're right. It doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, let me say this. It's about what causes something to start with. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what causes it. But okay, let, let's hear an analogy. There was a plane crash. We disagree on what caused it. Um, okay, but there was a plane crash. And now we're going to have a you know policy to obviously in the, oh, the plane crash maybe it wouldn't matter what the cause was but but in this particular instance it doesn't all right so okay anyway. so, so so my 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 impression is that this is a more academic disagreement that's important but it's it doesn't change the overall sort of push of the MMT project I believe that's one hundred percent correct that's right okay great and then right. one uh, we still very much do have a fractional reserve banking system. Um, yeah, th th that part's not any different. Uh, so my understanding of the system is, but you know, banks still do very much. They, private banks make money too. And it's not just the government. Uh, when you go in to take out a loan, the bank makes up brand new money out of nowhere. Then the difference is though, that the way, 
And let me back up and say, this is something that Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton and Pavlina Chir, we absolutely totally agree with. I mean, this is, in fact, I saw somebody, I, I think I saw a tweet where Stephanie had to respond to somebody saying, why didn't you bring up, you know, the private sector creating money too? She said, well, because it had nothing to do with my argument. You're right, it does, but it has nothing to do with what I was trying to talk about. Um, so um, that part is still true. But something I understand better than I used to, though, is uh, because the way I was taught was, was that the reserves that the banks have to keep uh, in reserve um, at the Fed are a binding constraint on how much they can, uh, how many loans they can make. And that is absolutely false. Uh, because if I'm, first of all, they have 14 days to make up, you know, if, if I go ahead and make a loan, uh, okay, I'm sorry, let me back up one more step. The banks have to keep about 10% of total demand deposits in reserve. But didn't that change, didn't that change uh, around March, I believe, that changed to 0%? God, I hope not. Uh, for I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that re- maybe we're talking about different things, but I'm pretty yeah. sure that reserve requirements changed to zero around yep. the beginning of this crisis. They did that in Mexico before the financial crisis, by the way. Uh, but it turns out not to make any difference anyway, because the, um, the, the old story was that uh, just like in, in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, if you don't have enough reserves on hand, people could rush in, and um, you know you could run out of money. But the Fed automatically uh, the Fed automatically supplies reserves because if they don't, then after the bank makes a loan and is short of reserves, they will. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking something up at the same time. They will um, interest rates will go up. It, let's say we're in an expansion, and all of the banks are making loans for which they don't have enough reserves to cover. Uh, then here's the Federal Reserve in the U.S. Um, it's something zero, something zero regime. I think is how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For up to 16 million. Um, uh, thank God for Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, I have it somewhere, but I'm pretty sure it's like March. Something. Yeah, the minimum reserve requirement for all deposit institutions was abolished, or more technically, and and, and why not? Because it, it didn't do anything. Um, because what they did was they automatically supplied the reserves. Uh, and, and let me give you uh, maybe the easiest way to do it would be the example. Well, I, before you give the example, before you give the example, can you, uh, uh, I mean, maybe we're talking, maybe it's just terminology because because yeah. reserve, re, fractional reserve banking system is, is a loaded term, really. So I think people misunderstand what it is, perhaps, uh-huh. and that maybe we're confusing reserve requirements and fractional reserve banking because... I mean, I've seen many times people saying the fractional reserve ended, you know, 1913 or whatever the case is. Yeah. No, no. I mean, the example I use in class, and I haven't updated this since March 2020, clearly, um, is 10 percent, because that's what the requirement used to be, that that the banks have to keep 10 percent of demand deposits. And I'll have to look up and see if that affected that or not in reserve. And it comes from the old idea that if people came running into your bank to take their money out, uh, as Jimmy Stewart would say, well, well, your money's not here. And uh, as a consequence, you could uh, have a, you know, a run in the bank and you would go, uh, go bankrupt and then people would all lose their deposits because really, oh, now this gets really complicated. Money on the private sector is just a bunch of IOUs. Um, but all right, let's, let's say that I have 100,000 in demand deposits in my bank. I'm the banker. And so therefore, I have 10,000 in reserve, 10% of that. But then somebody comes in with a really good idea that wants to borrow money. Well, I don't have any reserves. Uh, and so, um, well, I'm sorry, let me back that up. Uh, they they want to borrow another 100000 So now it's going to be 
Um, I, this is too complicated. The long and the short of it would be it wouldn't change hardly anything in the book. Uh, not, that wouldn't. Um, because I really kind of glossed over the financial sector part of that, of that part of the financial sector anyway. So yeah, that, the, changing that and, and making, you know, talking about the government making uh, money would not change anything substantial in the book. The book really ends up focusing on the forecasting of, of currency dealers. That okay. ends up, yeah, the key part. Okay, so so not now, but I think it would I think it would be beneficial to to yeah review what fractional reserve banking is because I've seen many times people saying oh no fractional reserve ended a hundred years ago and that's it's a loaded term it really is so so I think people don't understand what it is yeah I, I, I'll, I'll bet they're referring to the idea that um, banks are reserve constrained they haven't been cons- reserve constrained in decades because the fractional reserve banking can be there. And you can either can be reserve constrained or not be reserve constrained by that rule, depending on how the Fed acts. So that's probably what they're talking about. But okay. I don't. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I, th- I think it's definitely a, a misunderstanding of the term. Um, okay. Okay. All right. Good enough. Uh, so the answer to your question is your book pretty much would not change. No. You're no. Solid. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. Great. Great. Um, okay. Next question. My ultimate goal, and that is obviously uh, impossible to achieve today unless you want to stay on the phone for a few months. Um, I think there is a really important connection to be made between your work and Fidel's work, Fidel Kaboob's work. And in your late Mexican delivery, margarita-fueled yet very entertaining, horrifically boring lecture, which was organized by Modern Money Australia and MMT Podcast, I believe it was August, you said the following. You said, what if I, or in reaction to a question, what if I'm a small African nation? Can I follow MMT policies? I don't know. I have always wondered about that. Right. So um, we have a question now from Stephen uh, who asks, thanks, John. And he says, thanks, John, and asks, how does MMT relate to the US dollar as a global currency and the necessity of the um, US dollar to be in international trade? And does MMT relate to the U.S. similarly to every other country that does or used to rely on the U.S. dollar for global trade? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, and uh, you know what? I think I've had enough of margarita now to actually put the hat on. Um, so <laughs> I'll do that. But uh, the it is so much easier for the U.S. to do whatever they want with their own money because I, I explained to students, um, where's my cell phone? Here it is. People in China are happy to accept little pieces of paper for, oh, that's my wife right there. It's not actually my wife because my wife isn't a phone, but it's just a picture of my wife. Um, but um, they're happily accept this in exchange for just pieces of paper. So the fact that we have the world reserve currency is glorious, all right? Um, what if I am a small African nation? Can I follow MMT policies? Um, I don't know. I, I have I have always wondered about that. It is it is not. Uh, you know how it is with academics. You end up with this very narrow area of of, of focus, and that's not it for me. Um, I, I've written two papers on economic development, and they were so horribly depressing uh, that I never wrote any more. Um, but it's a good question, I, and I don't have a solid answer. And then you clarify that you know you're you're not your specialty is not developing nations. I think I understand what you mean, but I have seen people interpret it differently, and I want to clarify uh, your thinking. And that is, um, 
you know, us as MMTers in general, we know a hundred percent. We know with total certainty that the central governments of the UK and US and Canada and Australia had the financial capacity to do vastly more for public purpose. Right. Just without question. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's going to have you happen in anytime soon. The challenge <laughs> is that we have to inform the people, the general public, so that the public can put pressure and on the government or become the government so that we can use the economy for the people. So that is right. not a financial problem. It is a political problem. I think that's a, I think that's the correct way of yes. saying it. I agree. I see this as analogous to developing nations. Although obviously they would not be able to do it with the bells and whistles and luxuries as developing as developed countries, if developed countries could, you know, get out from under the thumb of their of their colonizing overlords, float their currency, and implement full employment, then it is according to Fidel's work they could obviously do so much more for public purpose. So when you say, I don't know and I wonder regarding whether they can implement MMT policies, I believe that you're referring to the, you know, it may be very well unlikely or even impossible for them to get out from under the thumb of their colonizers. But that is a political problem, not a financial problem. And I believe that when your concern is whether they can do it or not, is the political aspect of can they get out from under that thumb? Is that is that fair? Is that an accurate? Uh, if I may, just for a second, back up to your your thing about uh, SMMTers knowing they would work over here. Uh, I am proud to say, along those lines of, of trying to get the word out, uh, I've had a, a really nice man at KRLD Radio has been interviewing me once a week since the coronavirus thing started. Wow. And just this morning, we did another one, and he says, "Well, now you know." As you say, the government has no budget constraint. This is now a regular part of his story when he talks to me. And, you know, and, and that we've worked together so long now that uh, you know he can anticipate what I'm going to talk about. I often send him my notes the night before, um, but but he buys into it completely, and it's on a very conservative radio station. I might add here in mm -hmm. Fort Worth, uh, well, in Dallas, Fort Worth. It's actually in Dallas. Uh, and um, so, anyway, uh, I've, I've at least convinced one reporter. Uh, so yeah, we'll and a conservative one at that. Yes, yes, that's right. He's pretty good guy, but yeah, the, yeah, the station is, is very conservative. Now, uh, I, I'm going to have to be um, embarrassed to tell you that no, that's not what I was thinking. I just literally haven't given much thought. I just literally haven't. I, I um, uh, I'll tell you, this is my, my, my worry, and I just haven't pushed on it to figure out, what if I'm in a developing economy that desperately needs a particular import? Uh, so I need them to accept my money to get that import. Um, I don't know how that works. I, I don't you know. The U.S. is, is largely self-contained, and where we aren't self-contained, people want our money. So you know, we're in a really, really good spot to take advantage of MMT, which of course is why we're actually doing that. Oh wait, no, we're not. Um, so uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, again, it, it's not because. I have thought about it and I'm uncertain. Um, I just end up thinking, you know, well, I want to think about something else. Uh, it's one of the nice things about my job uh, uh -huh. is that, you know, I get to focus on what I find most interesting. But I will tell you this. I, I was uh, one of my colleagues uh, who's also who is a mainstream economist, but he's a development economist. And I was mentioning to him one day that I've done a couple of development papers and I was so depressed afterwards 
that I really didn't want to do anymore. And he said, and I think it was Robert Lucas, who was a very hardcore neoclassical guy, said that once you learn development, nothing else is important. In other words, who gives a crap about a recession in the United States when we are talking, comparing that to the economic problems in sub-Saharan Africa? There's no comparison. The, the best day of the week over there is, except for the elites, better than a recession in the United States. So, you know, again, there's nothing more important than economic development uh, is what, again, I think it was Lucas says. And I, I totally understand that. And, I, and I, I agree. I just don't feel like I had the skill set uh, and, and nor I'm really fascinated by business cycles. Uh, and, and so that's kind of where I've gone since I've done the exchange rate stuff. So I, I honestly don't know. And the thing that's in my head again, oh, and speaking of Fidel. Okay, so yesterday, or was it today? I had reason to look back through a really old set of emails. And I had a set that I wanted to keep just because, you know, I, I, I want to remember this conversation. I found an email from Fidel from 2003 when he oh, was a wow. grad student at UMKC. Uh, hey, Dr. Harvey, uh, I saw your stuff about system dynamics, you know, and I'm really interested in that. I wonder if I could, you know, so anyway, I thought, ah, I, we, I've known him and I've known uh, Pavlina Chernova since they were grad students. Wow, that's great. Uh, but, um, that, that's what happens when you when you get old. But yeah, so I, I just literally haven't really thought about it. But the thing that always sticks in my head is I desperately need to import something from somebody else. Do they accept my currency? Now, if my country's at full employment, then maybe my currency is pretty powerful. Maybe it's something, well, yeah, I want your currency, but I, I don't know. Well, what's the first thing that comes to mind is something desperately needed that needs to be imported? Oil. Okay, but that's, that's I, I figured you were going to say that, and they, yeah. we shouldn't be on oil, right? Well, but right now we are. So, I mean, if we can only solve one problem at a time, um, or, or food, for that matter, there, there are um, developing economies that, I remember reading that, that uh, after the Asian financial crisis, uh, that there were countries that imported food that were absolutely devastated by the fact that their currencies had fallen by 30 to 40 percent. Um, right. That all of a sudden, people who are having to you know live, depend on rice as their main as their staple, are their incomes are wiped out. So so you know uh, okay uh, rice then uh, instead. Uh, and then maybe your country can make food, or maybe it's the Falklands. Uh, you know like, like an independent Falklands where unless you want to eat sheep all the time and penguin. Uh, then you're going to have to import some food from somebody else. Uh, so, and, and I don't know, may, maybe it's easily solvable uh, or maybe, yeah, maybe a world where the U S and the UK and Japan and Germany are all at full employment is a decent civilized world. Uh, and, you know, well, well, okay. Even though we might not necessarily want anything you've got, we're going to buy your currency anyway. Yeah, we're going to sell it to you anyway. Cause it, but I, I don't know Now that would okay, be all right. All right, so that's fair. So you just genuinely don't know the answer, okay? Because someone that's took right. that. Someone took that as oh, Dr. Harvey says maybe it's maybe you know it's not possible. But all right, that that helps. But uh, I, I I have no idea what it would be. But I feel like I feel like I wish that you and Fidel would like have like a two hour conversation or something to start yeah. like bringing your work together. I don't I don't even know what that would be. But um, uh, yeah, and just a, and one example that comes to mind is is uh, Fidel talks about uh, hydroponics for food. You know, that's an example of getting away from having to import food and stuff. So, right, right. Um, yeah, no, okay, but that's interesting, though. All right. Um, okay, uh, next question, completely different. Um, a major cause of currency crises, according to your book, is the discrepancy or tension between groupthink, which is like bandwagons and herd behavior, 
and the underlying condition in the real world. So groupthink thinks it's one thing, but it's actually reality is just way off. And it keeps that difference, keeps growing bigger and bigger. And so the tension grows and it becomes more and more susceptible to smaller and smaller final straws that start, you know, that blow it yeah. all up. And, but it often, it actually seems that the final straw is often blamed for the entirety of, you know, the decades of problems or whatever it is. Right. An example in your book that you give is the December, it's called the December surprise, which some Mexican president made some statement and December that, mistake. December mistake. mistake. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That was my mistake about the December mistake. And that's right. Yeah. But it's especially descriptive. They called it the December mistake. Yeah. Okay. December mistake. So it's the Mexican president made some statement about currency in 1994, and that started the crisis. But really, the crisis had been brewing since around like 1980 or something. And and I see this as analogous to the, the common complaint of, you know, Zimbabwe created too much money and they caused hyperinflation and uh, created yeah. too much money and they, because they are blaming the final straw on the decades of problems. Like they're, they're ignoring the war in Weimar. They're ignoring the decades of problems, horrible stuff that had been going on in Zimbabwe. That the current, creating the crisis, the very, creating the currency, you know, trillion dollar bills is what caused essentially in retroactively decades worth of problems. And I, and I actually see that on more on a, you can see this on a personal level too, just being in denial. And then right. finally, you know, you finally give up that denial and, and your whole, you know, you're dealing with issues from the past 20 years or whatever, you know. And so regarding this final straw, regarding uh, this discrepancy in the tension. So I'm, I'm curious what you think of that relationship to other sort of realms and, and you know, yeah. as obviously in exchange rates as well. Yeah, no, uh, the way I describe a financial or, or I guess a currency crisis in class, because I have this little model I use where. There's like three places where the currency crisis could break out. Uh, and I can't remember them all. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, the, the point was, points in your mental model. Yeah, yeah. Talking about. Exactly, yeah. Um, and one of the, when I was, okay, so let me back up a little bit. The book was originally going to be called A Post-Keynesian Approach to Exchange Rate Determination. And Melanie, my wife, says, that's an awful title. Uh, you have <laughs> something catchy. So, all right, all right. So I thought about it for a while. And I thought, ooh, people like alliteration. Currencies, capital flows, and of course, those are the two big you know, themes in the book. Currencies, capital flows, and crises. She said, oh yeah, that sounds good. I had nothing on crises in the book. So it's uh -huh. her fault that I had to write a whole section on crises, um, but it should have been there all along. <laughs> so, the alliteration forced you to. <laughs> yes, yes, the alliteration forced me to write a new part of the book. Um, and uh, so in, in writing this, because I hadn't really thought about it as much, and so, you know, I focused on the Mexican and Asian financial crises. Uh, and what struck me was that there were problems emerging in a number of areas at once and that that's the way it always works. Um, and let me give you the first the analogy. We've got a three legged stool and we're putting weights on top of it and weight after weight after weight. And this is analogous, I think, to your process. Um, that, you know, what's going to eventually, obviously, this is going to make the whole thing break. But then we, we end up blaming it on the last one we put up there, um, on the last weight we put up there. And furthermore, on leg number three broke, you know, leg number three, let, let's all spend years and years analyzing leg number three. Honestly, mm. easily. Oh, been, interesting. Yeah, it could have easily been leg number one or two. What, that the pressure was building on all three. It wasn't a question of whether or not, you know, the only open question was which one was going to break. 
Uh, and really, that was just going to be a historical accident. Well, well, you know, the December mistake or in uh, Thailand, the you know, government, oh no, uh, Lamprasong um, land development, I think is what they were called. They defaulted on something. And that was the thing that, that set the, 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 you know, everything uh, in motion. So, uh, yeah, and then you end up blaming it on that very last thing that happened. Well, quite honestly, it could have broken in a number of different places, uh, it, but it was going to break. And was it was it was gonna break? Not because and it was the weight on top anyway. It wasn't yeah. the, the deficiency of the leg. Right, right, exactly. And, and it wasn't gonna break because of that last weight. It was gonna break because of the process of adding weights and adding weights and adding weights, which in both of those cases was was um, market liberalization. Mm-hmm. In both cases, they decided, uh, you know, we should open up our our and with the fine advice from the World Bank and the IMF, you should open up your financial markets to the rest of the world. Uh, okay. Uh, and so then you've got all this money coming in to buy Mexican financial assets. And of course, that naturally bids up the price of the financial assets. Meanwhile, the, uh, so, so we get the price of financial assets going up much faster than the actual rate of GDP growth in Mexico uh, and in um, Thailand as well. And because the peso and, and the Thai bot were so strong, people were met, taking out loans in foreign currency. Uh, and then think about that. What if you have a loan in foreign currency, but your domestic currency depreciates and you make all your money in domestic mm. currency? You're screwed. Uh, the, 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 I'm remembering things from the book, uh, only because I go over it in class. I haven't read the book in years. Uh, but um, that the number of non-performing loans or the, uh, the, the, the peso value of non-performing loans in, the, in Mexico after the crisis was bigger than the total capital of the entire Mexican banking system. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it was absolutely disastrous. Uh, and so going back to, I guess, starting first with the idea that, um, you know, they focus on the last thing. I think that's right, because the, the, the post-Keynesian view is going to be, no, 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 you caused this problem back when you said, hey, uh, we should allow people who are willing to take their money out, you know, at a moment's notice, a capital flight, to put their money in here. And uh, I got a lot more to say about that, but I won't because I want to talk about something else you said. Um, And I again think it goes back to the wrong theory. Since the neoclassicals saw nothing wrong with the financial market liberalization in the first place, that couldn't have been the problem. So in their mind, it's got to be, you know, crony capitalism or or, or whatever. Putting the weights on the stool is not a problem. That's that's the right thing to do. Therefore, the legs must be faulty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a in a free market, they'll always put the weights to be exactly in the right spot, or or, or whatever, something along those lines. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's going back to what you said about Minsky. If your theory can't explain a chair can break, then your theory sucks. Um, mm. And so, it's the theory that causes that interpretation. It forces that interpretation because there's nothing else left. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, paper by Paul Romer who won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years ago, which therefore means he's a neoclassical economist. But before that, he'd written this scathing paper on the state of macroeconomics in his own school of thought. He literally says in the paper, it has ceased to become scientific research. And he talks about the fact that basically they have assumed away any human interaction causing anything in the model. And that anything that causes fluctuations must have come from the outside. It must have been some external shock or whatever. And so that that kind of fits your whole story there of that thing that happened at the end. That was an external shock that then caused the whole thing to collapse. But anyway, the Romer thing is very good. I happened to be on a panel with him um, 
after he'd written the paper, but before he got the Nobel Prize. And he said he received such hell for that, that people in neoclassical economics were attacking him, you know, in emails, not, but not because they thought he was wrong. How dare you say that about, you know, Robert Lucas or about Milton Friedman, you know, mm-hmm. our, our cherished thinkers. How dare you say that? He's like, what about yeah, my art? You call it ancestor worship, I think. Ex- precisely what it is. Ancestor worship. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting. Hmm. And I, you know, it, it, it makes me think of historical time where we only consider the, 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 the chair, the, the stool in its initial state, because that's, that's all we need in order to predict, you know, everything in the future. And therefore the weights on the chair is what's, igno- I, I, I know I have something, something is there, but the well, weights being put on the chair is like the future things that happen after the initial state. And therefore that's, that would only be acknowledged to even exist in historical time where logical time only looks at the stool and therefore everything that happens after those at that initial state is not even looked at. Yeah. And there's another problem that's kind of more highly theoretical. Neoclassical economics is obsessed with, with building general equilibrium models to explain the way the, the economy works. And it's very simple. Anybody who's been, who's taken high school math knows what it is. It, it's a, um, I mean, can be, become very complicated, but it's simply a system of equations. Uh, but, you know, it's like two equations, two unknowns. You can solve that. Um, and they want to build everything like that. Though. Let's do 50 equations and 50 unknowns. The problem with a set of simultaneous equations is the word simultaneous. You, mm. you can't show the passage of time with it. Mm. You can only show individual snapshots. So you can't show, okay, if this happens today, what will happen tomorrow? Uh, I don't know. Because according to my model, it just stays here forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why you, you have neoclassical economists after the financial crisis admitting, yeah, we, we don't really have financial models in our uh, or financial sectors in our models. Because to, to, to take into account a financial sector, you have to take into account debt, private sector debt in this case. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so there, there's a number of reasons why they can't see it. Um, but anyway, it's all very – oh, I have to say, and, and I said this – uh, I don't remember who I was talking to last time on a podcast. Uh, I think maybe it was Christian again. Um, it is so heartening to have people like you and, and Christian and, and Stephen doing so much work for this when the post-Keynesians and institutionalists before our time, they had to live out their entire career thinking, oh, well, I think this is a pretty good idea, but absolutely no one is listening. Absolutely mm. no. Now mm. we've got people who are like, hey, that makes some sense. And mm. we've got people like you who are like, you know what? I'm going to read a really hard book to figure this out. Um, and that really is very invigorating. And, and, very, you know, and, and we may end up losing. Uh, I, I was at a conference that, that uh, Jamie Galbraith had put together. And, uh, okay, so first of all, I asked him, uh, this, this was over uh, beers and so forth at the end of the conference. Um, that, you know, what do you think the odds are of us affecting the rest of economics? He said, oh, the rest of economics is dead. He said, neoclassical economics, there's no point in, in conversing with them at all. I said, well, what do we do instead? He said, well, exactly what we're doing right here. And it was a conference where we brought in policymakers and so forth, uh, you know, talk to policymakers. They're going to listen. What are our odds? Oh, I don't think very good at all. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yep. but that's not, that doesn't matter. You've still got to do what's right. What alternative is there? Yeah, yeah. you've got to keep putting. And so, again, thank you and thank all those who are are listening. And it's so um, heartening. It really does make you think, 
well, doggone, I'm going to keep pushing on this because maybe we've got a chance. Uh, well, so I have, I have a, a few yeah. more, I have a few more, a few more questions for you. Um, yeah. And I've got uh, all my YouTube written out right here. Okay, great. Um, okay. Next question. Unrelated. 11, right. I'm sorry. Say it again. Number 11, I believe. Right. Number 11. Yeah. How much does a country need to be concerned about individual traders sitting at their computers across the planet or groups of traders? Um, or is it just primarily, you know, the IMF and governments like setting them up for failure to begin with? Is that it? Or is there also an additional element of, you know, traders yeah. across the planet in front of their computers? And I might as well ask the next one in this in, right now yeah, as yeah. well. The internet obviously dramatically changed the world, especially foreign exchange, because now things can happen in milliseconds across the planet. So, you know, before, I mean, I guess computers, I guess, I mean, the internet is just, uh, the internet really has been there as far as trading is concerned, probably yeah. longer than, you know, 1993, which is when I consider the web to have been created. But how did that fit into this? Like, what were crises at all? Were crises simply less severe before internet high-speed trading? Yeah. Um, no, well, okay, so let me back up to the, uh, do we need to be concerned about individual groups of traders and so forth? I think the big problem is what you alluded to after that, and that is it's the system itself that's causing the problems. Uh, we could put in a completely different group of people, and we're still going to have the problems. And and, and this is, uh, well, th there's something you asked me in question number 14, and, and if I may interject that right now, uh, and that was, is there anything else you think should be said? And I think this is a good time to say it. I wish people were more familiar with the absolute volatility of currency prices. It is so beyond reason, and it affects people's lives uh, that, you know, I wish they understood the same about stock prices. But but the thing with currencies is that currencies are, are, are also prices. And, and let me give you some numbers here I've got from, uh, let me find my little chart here. Okay, this was... Let's see, January 2006 to June 2011. So I'm, I'm doing this around the, the financial crisis. Over the 27 months from January 2006 to March 2008, uh, the dollar fell by 28%, by 28% against the euro. So this means- What's the time frame again, please? Uh, only two years, March, two years. Uh, January 2006 to March 2008, so 27 months. Okay. It fell by one third. And now you tell it to the person on the street, oh gosh, yes, that is a lot, isn't it? But now say to them instead, what if inflation had gone up by 28% over those 27 months? We'd have been burning the White House down. Um, <laughs> we would not have put up with that. Well, that's what it is. Everything European or everything Euro denominated became 28% more expensive over that period. But wait, there's more. Because then over the next year, so okay, so it goes up by 28% in two years, and then down by 18% in the next year, and then up by 17 in the next nine, uh, nine months. And again, keep picturing inflation. If prices went up by 17% in nine months, we'd go crazy. Then the dollar, uh, okay, so here it goes um, uh, down by 28% over two years, up by 18% over one year, down by 17 over nine months, up by 16 over seven months, and down by 18 the next 12 months. It's bouncing back and forth over a range that makes no logical sense whatsoever if these currencies are really supposed to be attached somehow to the strength of the United States, you know, sort of the goods and services that we sell. It's all financial market stuff. 
it is overreaction. It is absolutely, totally overreaction. Now, if these were people in Vegas, okay, have fun. But those fluctuations affected people's lives. There were importers and exporters who were wiped out by that. We had a job candidate once uh, from Belgium, and I asked him, you know, uh, how he learned to speak English so well. And he said, well, my father's an importer. And uh, he imported stuff from the U.S., so I would travel with him a lot over here. He said, and, and by the way, when the euro collapsed after the euro was introduced relative to the dollar, his dad was almost wiped out. Now, there was no logical reason for it to fall as much. And I, can, I couldn't tell you right now offhand what the percentages were. But um, these are affecting people's lives. And I wish people were more familiar with the absolute volatility of currency prices and were upset by it and were upset by it and, and demanded that we prevent this from happening, these massive fluctuations. Now, this goes back into, now I want to feed this back into your question. Uh, how much do we need to worry about individual groups of traders? Um, not so much because it's the system that's creating this. We have, a, a, let's say that we said like Chile did at one point, okay, you can invest in my country if you're a foreigner, if you want to, but there's a minimum amount of time you have to leave the money here. If you pull it out early, there is a, 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 a penalty uh, because we don't want you coming in here with your money today and leaving with it tomorrow because that's going to cause havoc on our economy. Uh, and they did that. And when the Mexican financial crisis occurred, they were the least affected, one of the least affected countries in Latin America because they had protected themselves from these hot capital flows. Uh, so that's the system. However, you also mentioned, you know, uh, maybe groups, and this is interesting, and I have no answer to this, currency dealers themselves appear to be convinced that a few large banks are able to manipulate the currency prices in ways that are advantageous to them. You know, if I need to buy some yen, I'm going to make sure the yen falls before I can buy it. Uh, now, that's not really the systemic issue, but I do think it's interesting that they have this view that I'm being screwed by somebody. I don't know who it is, but I'm being screwed by somebody. I think it's Citibank or whatever. Uh, and I would like to look into that one day. That, that I don't know how, what kind of data you would need to try to, to figure that out. But, you know, so first off, the system itself, I think, is the problem. Now, the computer-based trading, how does that tr uh, change things? Some of the, you know, I mentioned those books I got from the TCU library earlier on how to, uh, how to manage a foreign currency desk. And some of them were written back when you would make a phone call. And of course, this mm. is like 1990 or so, so they're being so written I, about the 1980s. I don't know why it just hits me. It's obviously, it slows things down. I mean, that's, that's a huge yeah. part of it. Yeah. And, and here's the other fascinating thing to me, is there was a psychology and a sociology to it, that you had to be pleasant to the other person you were talking to, that this is your mm -hmm. contact in London that you buy pounds from. And also, if that person calls you, you want to give them a good price. Because you don't want to be, you want to make sure that there's people who will answer the phone when you call. And that, that's, you know, neither here nor there. I just thought it was fascinating that this is the way the world once worked. Now with the computer screen, of course, it's totally anonymous. So what, or what roughly year are we talking about that it turned away from individual personal phone calls to computer-based? It had to be well before 93. Yeah, I would guess during the 80s. I, I, I blame the 80s for a lot of this sort of shift towards financial market activity uh, and away from... Because uh, before that, of course, we had a fixed exchange rate system in, uh, up to about 73. And largely, although even then it was changing, uh, goods and services were the primary reason for buying foreign currency. And then during the 80s, you've got um, Thatcher and Reagan, you've got greed is good. Uh, and so the idea that we can now make these trades instantly, well, of course, this makes us even much more um, efficient, right? Uh, mm. Except what it does is it magnifies any 
euphoria or panic. And, and I don't know, uh, you're probably not old enough to remember the very first semester I taught was fall of 1987 and we had a stock market crash. I'm only 10 years younger than you. Okay. Well, let's see. 1987, I was, uh, I was 20, you'd have been 16. All right. So, uh, so the, uh, there was a stock market crash in October of 87 and it was because people started selling, but then that triggered signals on computers that then the computers joined in, you know, and you said, were these problems dramatically different from before the internet uh, or computer-based trading? Uh, yes, I, I do think that we were set ourselves up for a much faster transition from, you know, a falling price to a collapsing price, but, but we actually did something logical. We introduced law, or I shouldn't say, well, it's a law, I suppose, uh, rules in the stock market where if a price falls by more than X percent, we close the market. Short circuit. Uh, yeah, exactly. Precisely. Which is what we huh. should be doing internationally. Um, but that's we're not. A, yeah. That's really interesting. And actually, this brings a whole new meaning to Bernie's trans high-speed transaction tax. Yes. Where yes. That's, how he, that's how he said he would pay for, uh, I believe it was college, uh, yeah. pre-college, universal college, high-speed transaction tax, which is it discourages that. Okay. And, yeah. and actually the other thing it reminds me of, and actually this, this brings up, I mean, I don't know anything about it, but it obviously has something to do with business cycles because the, you know, it's just violent, up, violent ups and downs and, and the job guarantee mutes, you know, yep. shrinks high shrinks. Well, it actually lifts the floor, which inherently shrinks the, the ceiling, but directly. Right. And it's, you know, it reminds me of the Federal Reserve, how people sometimes analog analogize the Federal Reserve where, you know, we're drive the Federal Reserve is driving the car, but actually they're using, you know, Maggie's toy steering wheel and no one's actually driving the actual steering wheel. Right. And so the car is just bouncing against guardrails, you know, that's yeah. that's what's happening and that's happening on, on the international scale as well. Yeah. So, oh, uh, yeah, no. Uh, something else that changed is the volume has increased so much. If you look at and I'm thinking of stock market here, uh, but I, I, I suppose we could look at those BIS surveys. I don't know how far back they go. But the abs absolute volume has increased relative to the amount of underlying economic activity because people are buying and selling financial assets like crazy. And we don't need that. It's not doing anything helpful. All right. So it's, it would be OK to have a much lower um, turnover in financial assets. It would be perfectly OK. Uh, now, actually, now I'm I'm curious of you know I know nothing about business cycles and I'm, I'm you know now you know that's your other specialty and I'm I'm curious to you know how that relates to this. Um, uh, send me an email, remind me via email, and I will send you a couple of papers I have on. Um, I love business cycles. I have a class I teach on business cycles. Cool. All right. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anyone listening too, if you want to you know copy my couple of papers on business cycles, I'd be happy to send them along. I can put them in the show notes. I'll put them in the show notes. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So my final major question is, uh, and this is related, is as I understand your book and Eileen Grable's work, the primary problem of exchange rates is essentially, as I see it, the, we let the mob take over the world. I mean, we let the mob take over everything and their loan sharks have been put in charge of our economics and our finances. And the mob has no interest in long-term, you know, public purpose, long-term what's best for us. They care nothing more about than just getting in and out and maximizing their profits. So like you, I don't remember exactly what you were just saying, but you were saying something to the effect of they can push all costs 
real and financial costs onto everyone, which is why this is a problem because you know the powerful people can scoop in and get what they need and get out and everybody else has to suffer. Um, and of course, those who suffer are you know farthest away from the levers of power. So right. you know, and they have no consequences for this. So, so a country makes a deal with the mob, you know, the neoliberal, whatever IMF, whatever it is, and they take out essentially a predatory loan. And in exchange for you know the consequences of not being able to fulfill that predatory loan, which is basically impossible expectations, which of course right. they can't fulfill, which reminds me of the po- what the post office is going through now with their 75 years of whatever uh, yeah. future. So they inevitably, they can't fulfill that impossible requirement. And so they give up even more power to the mob. And and inev- inevitably it leads towards, you know, financial disaster. I mean, what else is it? And this is, this is that inequality. This is really no different on a global scale of a predatory loan you basically, you basically create criminals, and that you create desperation, and then you punish them for ask, acting desperately, and that's yeah. really analogous to individual on an inequality on an individual level and on this global level. So, in order to bail themselves out once they get into that position, the the country or company or whatever it is has to do something to satisfy that short term crisis of their of their predatory loan holder, which is against their long-term needs. So they're contradicting their own long-term survival in order to just, you know, deal with their, their uh, loan shark, you know, not to get their legs broken essentially. And so, okay. So I think that's, that's the correct, I think it's a reasonable analogy. It's at least in the ballpark and you'll correct it, but I think it's, yeah, I'm sorry. I think think it's worse at the global level than it is at the individual level, but I'll, I'll follow up on that. Okay. Okay. So, so the major solution is basically we have to stop incentivizing this short term, you know, this short term profiting. We have to basically create an artificial sense of long term to to some extent to get some steps away from this short term in and out, you know, profiting at any cost. So anyway, I I was sort of all over the place, but I think I think I got my point out. So is that correct? And you know, please. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, and I'm still thinking about oh, oh, and actually, I'm sorry, forgive me. There oh, was one important final statement. Yeah. But correcting this problem, <laughs> creating these incentives, the mob is in charge of the world. So that's, you know, that yeah, making those changes is is not an easy task. So, sorry. Yeah. No, the the, the as is so often true, the people who are in a posi- in the best position to make a change are also the ones who you know, uh, gain the least from change. So uh, they're not going to do it. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking about the predatory loan thing. At least I want you to succeed after I gave you that loan because I want the money back. Um, and the problem with the uh, the international level of, say, you know, you could picture um, a, a developing country taking out a loan from the World Bank or, or, or from Citibank, either one. From the World Bank, they would put conditions on them that unfortunately were informed by neoclassical economics. And so they're like, well, okay, uh, let's take uh, Greece isn't exactly the same uh, sort of circumstances, but it's much fresher in people's minds. Uh, Greece, you spent too much money. So what you need to do is for a lot of your people not to work anymore. Now, trying to imagine if Melanie and I were having trouble making payments on something, the bank said, well, here's your problem. Melanie needs to quit her job or, or you need to quit your job. So 
what, what reasonable solution on the planet is that we need 25% of your population or of your, of your labor force to be out of work? That'll help. That helps nothing. How can it help anything? So anyway, part of the problem, I think, at the international level is, I, I think... Now, first of all, I think if I'm a PD, you, you said it was you said it was worse at the international level. You mean worse than my analogy of the mob, or just worse than the individual level? Worse than the individual level, because I think to some extent, um, you know, I'm making my payday loan to somebody, you know, that, that that's in a, a difficult spot. But I, I think probably if they ask me for some advice about how I can make some more money, I'm probably going to give pretty reasonable advice. Uh, you know, well, there's a job center over here, whatever. You know, that's not my big concern. Of course, I just want the money from the interest, but I want the interest. Um, and so it's, or, you know, I want to foreclose on what you've got, but actually, um, the, the advice I would give you on how to succeed, if you ask me, um, would probably be relatively reasonable, but the advice that the IMF and the world bank were insisting on, not just, you know, uh, Hey, what do you, what do you think I should do? Um, were things that were detrimental to, to, to those countries development. Uh, and then when they borrow from the private sector, and this is stuff I've, I got from, from Eileen Grable, um, that of course you, you borrow from the private sector. The private sector wants profit. It's it, you know that's simple. There are many horrific things that are correlated with higher profits. Things like death squads. Um, I, I read that in one of her papers that if death squads are running around the countryside killing off labor leaders, eh, profits are really good in that country. Uh, you oh, know, literal death squads. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that the, the death squads are actually increasing profits by suppressing labor labor's wages or whatever. Uh, oh, wow. That. The things that are beneficial to short-term profit, and you said this too, are oftentimes not beneficial to long-term growth. And so absolutely, you have to break that link. Uh, and I, I don't think we will because, as you said, the, the people who have the most power to make the change are also benefiting the most from the current system. Eh, That's where it gets depressing. Um, and uh, I, I, I think it's something like MMT, and I was like, you know, well, okay. At least, and, and, and the job uh, job program, at least if we had full employment, even if we can't get rid of all that crap, we've got full employment. All right. So, uh, so, so that, that's another attraction of MMT is that seems doable. That seems like we could get that actually accomplished. That has aspects that, that are attractive to people across the board if you explain it to them properly uh, and they aren't already, you know, filled up with, with uh, propaganda. Um but yeah, I, I, I don't know what you do internationally. Um, and I have to say, we have a lot of Latin American students at, at TCU. And uh, uh, they're, they're always very interested in that part of the class. They're like, oh, well, huh. developing economy. Because I do, I have added more developing economy stuff in that class uh, because I felt like I should. Uh, and um, yeah, that, that, that what you say is right. We need to separate the uh, seeking short-term profit just beat that out of the system so that people are more interested in how does your country, how is your country going to do over the next 10 years? Not, can I make some money this next month and then get the hell out? Hmm. But I don't think it's going to happen. Okay. Well, at least we have to know. The first step is at least knowing what, what is possible. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Well, those are, those are the main questions. I, I'd like to broaden my final question a, a little bit, if I may. And, and that is just basically, you know, you speak highly of Eileen Grable and so on. So can, you know, for people that want to know more about this, I mean, this was not a, you know, the first thing people should listen to in order for getting into this topic, but can you, you know, give people an idea of, you know, 
maybe talk a little bit about Aline's work or whatever you think is important for people to, who want to know more. And can you also actually, can you give just an introduction, a brief introduction of how this connects to business cycles? Um, okay. So the Eileen Grable stuff, um, she was doing a lot of developing economy finan- financial stuff uh, coming out of uh, out of UMass Am- Amherst. And uh, gosh, I every time I read one of her papers, there's like something significant that I go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, and something that I thought of earlier that I was going to bring up that I, that I saw in one of her papers. But she talks a lot about the, the, the dependency of the developing world on the developed world for financing of, of projects and so forth and the right and the wrong way for them to achieve that financing. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine what the, what the wrong ways are. Um, something that I read in one of her recent papers, and, and I, I meant to bring this up earlier, was that a number of countries around the world, developing economies, are saying, to heck with you, World Bank and IMF. We see, we've seen how, uh, how good a deal we get from you. We're forming our own local organization, our own local, you know, regional, I should say, regional mm-hmm. World Bank is a regional bank. Uh, like we can't that depend. Re- honestly, reminds me of Fidel, Fidel's recent uh, CFA Frank uh, conference. Oh, was that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, 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 and she thought this was a, a very logical thing for them to do on a number of levels. One, they, they are going to get a better deal. Two, they, they know their own conditions better. Uh, that it's going to be uh, a, a tailor-made a world bank or a regional bank for them. And so they're like paying into it over uh, over the years so that they have a fund they can draw from in the event that they have another crisis, you know, another um, uh, financial crisis or whatever. Uh, but I don't know if it answers your questions on, on Eileen Grable. She does have a book out on development from a couple of years ago, co-authored with, oh, good Lord, I can't think of his name, but co-authored with somebody. Um I didn't, then, mean, I, I didn't mean Eileen Grable specifically. I know that you yeah. speak highly of her, but just yeah. as, as you know, her and in addition, you know, what do you recommend to people to right, learn right. more about this? And there's some good stuff from uh, um, Anina Kaltenbrunner, uh, who is at um, Leeds University. And that's that's a little bit more mathematical, though. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not too bad. And it's, and it's looking at the problem of a how now this is very mmt oriented perhaps and maybe gets into what i was thinking about earlier talking about the hierarchy of currencies on the planet there are currencies mm. that are considered more valuable than other currencies and i don't just mean in terms of the the value the absolute value but that um well the dollar is a safe haven currency if things are going bad no one rushes off to buy mexican pesos they rush to buy american dollars and how difficult that makes life for a developing economy trying to finance things. Uh, and so there's a nice little mathematical model I do in class to show that, uh, hey, hey, everybody, here's another way developing economies are screwed. Um, <laughs> now, the business cycle stuff. Um, uh, before, you, before you bring up business cycle, if I may, you actually, you're actually, you, that hierarchy or whatever you said, the hierarchy of currencies, that, that's basically the, you know, the spectrum of financial sovereignty. Yes. Yeah, well, and, and, um, and power. I, I think you have to think about power in there too, uh, you know, economic power. I mean, for example, uh, there's some a very little bit of institutionalist stuff that, that is focused in particular on international economics and some really good stuff by a guy named John Adams who's passed away now, a really nice man. Um, but he was talking about 
free trade. You know, what is free trade? Is it free trade is not free. It's just trade by our rules. All exchange yeah. by a particular set of rules. But if you stick by our rules, we call it free trade. Hey, you need free trade over there, which we're yeah. trying to make it sound like. It's like calling it, you know, liberty trade or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. However, you say before, free trade is free only among equals. Uh, yeah, that's right. And um, so he said that, you know, well, you – and he has an interesting discussion about as an individual country, you can push for your rules relative to how powerful you are to get away with it. If I am, you know, Colombia, I got to play by the U.S., Western Europe, you know, Japan, Australia, I got to play by their rules. I don't really have a choice. If I'm, if I'm China, I've got some wiggle room. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to, you know, do what I can to, uh, I- I'll do what I have to, to follow your rules. But if it's not convenient for me and I can get away with it, I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, so th- there, there's a political power element to it as well. Of course, a, a lot of that ultimately draw, draws from economics as well. Uh, but anyway, I'm sorry. That's, that's a whole other topic. Okay, great. Uh, uh, th- yeah, thank you. So, so business cycle, if, if I if I may, how does this connect? Because obviously, the the huge up and downs is what's killing us, both domestically and and uh, internationally. The huge up and downs is what's killing us. Because when we go down, the powerful people come in, grab what they need for themselves, and get out, and everybody else has to, you know. Yeah, I link that. Now, there's a great um, chapter in Keynes's General Theory. Uh, I guess when I was getting out of grad school, there was a paper in the Journal of Post Keynes Economics called. Uh, an overlooked chapter in Keynes's general theory or something like that. So I thought I'll read that. Chapter 22, notes on the trade cycle. He lays out a business cycle theory that has influenced me for, you know, 30 years. Uh, hmm. But it's taken me a long time to understand it. Uh, that, that there's, there's nuances. And, you know, I said earlier about new ideas aren't nearly as difficult as getting rid of the old ideas. Well, that's what was happening to me. Hmm. So the, the basic place where expectations play a role in the business cycle, it's not, it's not the same as the financial part. The financial part, you know, we talked about earlier about some self-fulfilling prophecy being the case. There's actually an underlying systemic reason for the ups and downs linked to physical investment. And I'm not sure how, how quickly I can explain this, but um, physical investment drives the rest of the economy. Uh, well, and, and in fact, the problem that we don't have enough is why we need MMT. Um, but you know, when, when restaurants are building, when, when um, for, for reasons that uh, would take too long to get into, uh, well, as you said earlier, we can't, we can't depend on consumption because people are going to want to save. So we, we have to have uh, firms investing. Now, uh, let's say we're in the early part of the business cycle. The early part of the business cycle, when we're just pulling out of a recession, firms are quite pleasantly surprised by even modest profits. Although the oh point at which profits rise the most, and again, I'm talking about physical and not financial investment here, is the early part of the business cycle. Statistically, that's when profits rise the most, which of course kind of makes sense because profits really sucked up till then, but it comes as a pleasant surprise. Oh, the economy is finally recovering. Oh my gosh, we missed out. We need to invest now too. So then you get this big rush of, and let's say your business cycle lasts about five years or, or your expansion lasts about five years. Uh, first year, you know, is, is, is uh, realizing that things have recovered. The next three years, things are going, you know, 100 miles an hour and Mm -hmm. firms are expecting really good profits and they're getting really good profits. But but it's okay. I don't know. It's it's okay so far, theoretically, because they are building things, again, theoretically, that people want. Um, Maybe they're making their profits off of of, of screwing people over. But let's even take the best case scenario. Even under the best circumstances, 
you know, people wanted more Mexican restaurants. We built more Mexican restaurants. The problem is those firms know, A, the market is only going to sustain a certain number of Mexican restaurants. B, we sure went into a whole lot of debt building those previous ones. C, we make nothing. We don't make a penny off of building a restaurant. We only make money when we open the doors. So what happens is at the end of every expansion, investment either decelerates or actually declines, right? Because not because firm, and this is the fascinating part to me, not because firms are disappointed. It's because, okay, we built all the restaurants we need. Excellent. Now let's open the doors. Except now I've laid off all these construction workers. I've laid off all these, you know, manufacturers of bricks, all these electricians and so on. And so when I open the doors, the profits aren't what I expected them to be. As Keynes says in the general theory, I always feel like in a a Tevye, in a um, a Fiddler on the Roof, as the good (laughs) book says, um, that uh, as Keynes says in the general theory, the profits might not be bad, but they weren't what they expected. All right. They weren't what they expected. And, and because the world is uncertain and not risky, because we don't have all the information, which does feed back into some of the stuff you've been talking about, um, we're thinking, crap, I-, I thought this was a good idea. Hey, shut down those other three projects too. Hmm. And depending on how many things we shut down all at once, and if you look at, at, at the, the, the um, track, the, 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 um, you know, if you look at physical investment over the course of the business cycle, you'll see it's highly correlated. And in fact, it falls before the before the recession starts, and it's going to start to rise, and eh, roughly coincident with, with coming out of it. But to me, the role of expectations there is the fact that they don't temper their expectations enough in late expansion. They might temper them, but not enough. And when things don't go like they thought they would, and this is Keynes's uncertainty that's really playing the big role here, there, then there's a role for panic that isn't there when you use the neoclassical assumptions about expectations. There's no panic involved when we're playing at the roulette table and we haven't been drinking. Um, <laughs> and you know, I don't get the number I want. Well, I don't suddenly decide, oh my God, maybe it isn't, you know, what is it, 36 numbers? I can't remember now. Um, you know, that you, that you sort, sort of, uh, of doubt the entire basis of the probabilistic forecast you made. No, the pro- it's just like playing poker and you lost the hand even though you had three kings. Well, that doesn't mean the next time I play, I'm not still going to go all in on three kings. It just means I, I didn't totally decide that all my thoughts about what the odds were were wrong. No, I just got bad luck. Whereas at the end of the business cycle, they're thinking, oh, my God, maybe my thoughts about this were all wrong. Um, and I, I have I have, you know, headline understanding of Minsky's instability process. That seems to be what you were talking about. Yeah. Instability, whatever that's called. Instability theory. Oh, instability the hypothesis. Yeah. The, the financial instability hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. That panic, that panic builds up and that, you know, it basically bandwagon and then it pops and then it falls violently. Yeah. And it has so much to do with Keynes uncertainty, which I didn't understand for a long time. I never put that in as prominent a place as it should have been in that theory uh, for many years, which is what's fun about my job. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the way that works. It makes so much more sense now. Okay. Um, all right, great. Um, uh, I don't know, you know, unless there's anything that you feel needs to be said. Um, no, uh, I, I said it already. I, I skipped down to your number 14 earlier. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, you, you know, thank you. I, I know that this was, you know, I sort of intentionally all over the place. So thank you for being uh, here. Yeah, no thank, you for being, thank you very much for being interested and for hosting me. 
well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I, you know, I, I feel like you know a lot of these mysteries are 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 a lot less so. So, um, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, thank you. And I'm now going to eat those fajitas that I made for the first time in my life with my instant pot, by the way. Uh, so it was a uh, very exciting. My okay, daughter, well, please. Yeah. Okay, well, please nuke them further a little bit. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks a lot, right. Jay. I'll see you later. Bye. show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with Texas Christian University PhD economics professor and cowboy economist John Harvey. The topic of our conversation is exchange rate determination, and we continue to work through my question list, which can be found in the show notes for part one. Much more information and resources can be found in the show notes, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with John Harvey.